We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeo Animal Podcast, a podcast all about zooarchaeology and the relations between humans and animals in the past. Welcome to episode 17 of the Archaeo Animals podcast. I'm Alex Fitzpatrick, and with me as always, Simona Falanga. And today we are talking about the holidays and feasting and all the other good stuff. And we really hope that Alex has eaten beforehand this time. Otherwise, it'll be really difficult to get through. Oh, God. I haven't. I haven't eaten yet. I'm sorry. But hey, listen, it's the holidays. Now, hopefully when you're listening, it is the holidays. And uh, more importantly, happy fifth birthday, uh, Archeo Podcast Network. We did it. Well, not we. (laughs) We've only been part of the podcast network for like a year. But like... Episode 17. So We contributed. um, Oh, I'm going to put myself on the spot with my bad math now. Uh, A year, five months. Something like Um, that, yeah. But, you know, but a great time for anyone who's listening to us to also listen to some other podcasts on network or become a member or support us in any other way. You know, it's a good um, anniversary. It's a a celebration of sorts. I guess that calls for a feast. Yay. So, yeah, that's kind of what we're talking about today. We'll be talking about feasting and the archaeological record since obviously... Feasts often have to do with animals, and I guess that's our jurisdiction. And also, I love food, so... <laughs> yeah, so I guess the, the first thing that would be worth mentioning is, like, what is the difference between feasting and just your regular consumption, your, like, your evening tea? Think about feasting. Uh, over the years, we've had numerous different definitions that have been put forward. So if we listed all of them, we'd probably just take up half the episode. So I think personally correct me if I'm wrong, Uh, what is key to remember here is that feasting involves a gathering of people, and then as um, Wiesner notes, should ideally extend beyond a household, and these people gather within a formal or semi-formal setting, and of course this all revolves around or includes the consumption of food. I mean, I would refer to me eating by myself as feasting, because it's a huge deal, but you know, I guess that makes sense too. (laughs) I feel like it's treat yourself is also a feast in its own right. I mean, that's a feast I do all the time. But yeah, feasting, uh, even though feasting has this kind of um, connotation as being like a religious thing or a ritual thing, especially when you're thinking about archaeology, it could also be secular. I mean, think of feasting today, obviously. It could be celebration. It could just be a surplus of food as that, you know. Could be rare back then. Exactly. Could just simply be Grandad's birthday. Yeah. And uh, it can be determined by um, the kind of deposition nature. If it's more ritualized, then you're probably looking at a feasting uh, context. But not necessarily, because that's the beauty of archaeology. There's always a but in archaeology. That should be a t-shirt. Just saying. Context is everything. Putting it out there. Context is everything. There's always a but in archaeology. Uh... But how do we actually recognize feasting in the archaeological record? I guess so the main, the key marker here is, of course, you have a single deposition of a high quantity of animal bone. Which is where, you know, our podcast comes in. Because obviously, you know, if you're looking at a pit, there's loads of a specific animal or a specific part of an animal, you know, the meaty bits, quote unquote, you're definitely looking at some kind of feasting or feasting adjacent activity that was going on there. If you're still picturing that pit in your mind and say it's been backfilled with material in a single event and there's a load, which is the correct scientific measurable term, a load (laughs) of animal bone in there that has been deposited in a single event, chances are... It was probably a large number of people that have been eating at the same time. Or, 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 yeah. or myself, because I will happily eat all of the food. So same. It, yeah. it's either an archaeological Simona or a gathering of people. There's no judgment on this podcast. No, you eat as much as you like. Feasting, <laughs> feasting can be a communal or a singular event here on the Archaeo Animals podcast. Exactly. 
And uh, as you said, then you will tend to mostly find higher sort of meat-bearing joints. But that's where the other butt comes in. Because, of course, on certain sites, you tend to find a wider range of meat joints, not necessarily uh, bearing a high amount of meat. Because, of course, that also depends on how egalitarian the society we're looking at was. So you may find an incident of very nice, uh, meaty bits that the elite will be eating and then what everyone else will be eating. Yep. Pick feet. It's a, it, it, it's a mixed bag. Literally. <laughs> While usually feasting does center around meat, you do tend to find grains and uh, other sort of non-meat material in the form of residue found on ceramics. Yeah, this is what... Of course, drinks, beer. Yeah. Uh, this is where this uh, episode of the podcast is going to be a little um, kind of out of our jurisdiction because, I mean, you really can't talk about feasting without also mentioning those like non-animal bits because they make such a big part of the, the feast. I mean, believe me, I will eat a all-meat feast as many times as I can, but, you know, there's other parts as well. <laughs> I guess there is a bias in its own right for us to even say that uh, feasting sort of revolved around mostly meat consumption. But exactly. that very definition is biased because the animal bone is what, what is most likely to survive. And for all you know, that society might have had loads of veg and only a small amount of animal, like of meat, but you're not going to find the veg. Yeah. And I think we'll, we'll probably talk about that later in the episode. Yeah. So we're definitely not going to, you know just focus on the animal bits. Although, of course, we will talk about them. Uh, so if we're still talking about animal bits, of course, one of the other things we can use to recognize feasting in the archaeological record is kind of the taxa or the, the kinds of species that you find within these groups. So more unusual species when compared to like the, the average consumption profile uh, of the ones available. You know, that might be a bit of a clue. Yeah, and of course, not just um, taxa itself, but even if the age and sex of the animals differs from the usual pattern of co consumption for that particular society. Because, uh, for instance, you may have uh, instances of sort of feasting with a higher incidence of juveniles. So if you think of like Roman suckling pigs being considered a del delicacy, you probably find a lot more juveniles than if you're looking, say, at I don't know, an agrarian society, finding a, a large amount of valuable adults, so say like milking cows in their prime, which would be considered you know, a substantial loss for that society, but it's all that showing that wealth, that celebration where you're willing to lose that material wealth in terms of your highly prized cows, which again suggests a celebration of sorts and thus uh, a more or less ritualized feasting. And speaking of more the more ritualized aspects, the context, I mean, again, we, we already talked about this, you know, it's all about the context, baby. But <laughs> when you think of the context specifically, spatially, where is the proximity of this de deposit to, say, funerary features or monuments, as opposed to, say, a settlement? These could all be different indicators of feasting. And I think that will actually come into play in a little bit later, especially when we talk about kind of individual case studies. Then I guess in terms of species, I mean, I'm not sure whether there's specific species that are a dead giveaway for feasting. Because you do tend to, it really varies on tradition and culture. So of course, what you tend to find more commonly will be domesticates. Of course, if you're talking about uh, agrarian societies, but you do tend to find wild animals, fish. It's it's a mixed bag, really. Yeah, you could basically basically either be your average domesticates or everything else. So basically, anything. I don't know why I tried to limit this by species, but yeah, when thinking about it, it, it could be anything depending on what culture you're dealing with. So, which brings us to why would people in the past feast? Because the, the most obvious reason is why not and treat yourself. <laughs> exactly. But as in, in more scientifically measurable, sort of, I guess you'll have celebrations which again don't necessarily have to be religious because you, you can it can be a celebration to mark a specific day in the year so you can have your, I know, your first harvest or following the lunar cycles 
uh, or even though even if the um, celebration is not maybe directly linked with the lunar cycle, you will find even in the ethnographic record that the feasting will take place around a particular lunar cycle. If that makes sense, then of course you have your, your usual sort of you know uh, life transitions, so birth, coming of age, mm, marriage, death, and then of course you have all of your you know highly ritualized and religious aspect to it, sort of like uh, sacrifices and well, at more structured religious celebrations. Yeah, and sometimes it's not necessarily a specific thing. It, like we said earlier, sometimes feasting comes from just a surplus. If, say, the uh, society that we're looking at only deals with a specific preservation process that isn't in place at the time, so meat won't come, won't uh, exactly. keep for long. Ha- yeah, having a feast doesn't only prevent waste, but you have the idea of forming bonds, alliances, that solidarity. It, it just basically just states <laughs> that there's no such thing as free lunch, even in the archaeological record. <laughs> it's, in a way, like, it's an interesting way of looking at it as well. Of course, it's, it's not only sort of economically wise in a way that you don't waste uh, sort of the surplus that you've hunted, mm-hmm. but you're actually, and in a way, does to this day, because you're like, you... I don't know, you meet some people and you really enjoy their company. So what you do, maybe you invite them around for dinner. And maybe it might not be as, um, like, mm-hmm. you know, like having an aim in mind, like you want to form an alliance <laughs> per se, but you might want to invite them around for dinner because you want to get to know them better. You want them to be your friend. You form a bond. It could be just something as simple as that. We still do it. Yeah, no, exactly. And I mean, if you want to get really scientific, we have scholars like Hasdorf, whose work we will put in the show notes, who has kind of just created three main categories that feasting kind of falls in. So you have the celebratory slash communal uh, feast, which we've kind of already covered. But um, also Hasdorf specifically says that it's a feast where Everyone's treated equally. Everyone's getting, you know, a certain amount of food, stuff like that. You know, it's it's a celebration. Um, then you have the patron slash client category, which means that there's clearly a giver and receiver defined. There's clearly someone who is providing a lot of the food for a person who is being honored, who is, you know, the most important person there, things like that. And then you have the status slash display feast which is all about showcasing the kind of wealth and power you had. Like you were saying before, Simona, showing off, I can butcher these animals and it's fine. I can eat these and make them for a feast and it won't affect me whatsoever because I have this kind of wealth and power. Yeah, I think one thing that's associated with that as well, or in some societies at least, I can't think of any particular examples off the top of my head, but it's also the association of animal skulls on top of uh, sort of like the bones that are associated with feasting. Do you think some of the interpretations were that the animal skulls were actually used as decorations? Yeah, no, that actually makes sense. I've never really thought of it like that. I don't think I've ever really come across skulls in that sense. But yeah, that would make sense. Because especially if you've been on a big hunt and you've hunted like these massive like stags, of course, you know, you would want to put like a red deer stag skull on display. Like it's quite... It has quite an effect on people. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely feel affected if I came in for Christmas dinner and my parents had just put turkey skulls everywhere. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> Actually, I'd be hype. I would be so hype because I'd be like, are those for me? Oh my gosh. <laughs> you finally accept me. Yeah, and then you can uh, use them as a reference for all the turkey that you're not going to find in Britain. Yes. <laughs> Anyway, so, you know, now that we've talked about why people would feast, where would they feast? And that's actually something we kind of covered. Depending on what kind of feast you're dealing with, it could be a communal space. It could be a ritually important space. I mean, there's some instances of feasts being held in burial grounds and tombs, those kind of funerary areas, which, you know, I think today seems kind of strange. But, you know, that was uh, accepted culture. And I, you know... One thing that I do wonder about some of the what have been interpreted as funerary feasts within a burial ground, I wonder if we can be absolutely sure that it was the living that consumed 
that feast sort of within the burial ground and then buried what was left of it, or whether it was actually meat joints thrown in a in a pit sort of within a burial ground as an offering, and none of the food was actually consumed. That's actually a really because good unless point. you get some very specific taphonomic factors lined up. You won't really be able to tell that from the deposit. I think at most that you might be able to get a slightly darker deposit showing some decaying organic matter. Yeah. But other than that, like, it's, yeah. I mean, it's, I guess it's a kind of thing we have, especially in zooarchaeology, of that kind of bias of, oh, everything needs to have a logical reason for being, you know, so logically you would think, oh, there's animal bones here that were clearly butchered and cooked people ate that here and modern day ideas of illogical wasting of food you know what i mean but in a way like it's um, it makes sense in a way because in our funerary tradition in many funerary traditions you do sometimes leave things well you essentially do it today as well you leave grave goods yeah for people and it might have been an object that they've cherished during their lives it might be something that you donate to them how about a lamb leg i mean I would probably eat the lamb leg and not give it to my grandpa, but that's well, that's not very nice. <laughs> I'm hungry. I think with that, we might have to take a break where I'll contemplate the fact that I have no food right now, and we will get back at it. And that Alex doesn't <laughs> share food. <laughs> what can I say? Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30 off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code animals everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we're back with Archeo Animals, and we are talking about feasting and holidays and all the other good stuff. So for this segment of the podcast, I figured we could talk a bit about, you know, how people would feast. So speaking archaeologically, something's really never changed. People would feast by being in groups of people who may be blood-related, they may be an extended group, they may be part of their community. Um, sometimes things would be sacrificed or offered to the gods, the spirits, whatever, more supernatural aspects that they may or may not believe in. And all these other kind of ritualized activities might happen as well, uh, which we do today. So, you know, we say grace before we eat. We exchange gifts, we make speeches, toasts, things like that. I mean, some things really don't change. And I think that's why we also wanted to talk about our own uh, feasting traditions, I guess. So, Simona, do you want to talk a bit about what you do during the holidays? Uh, I guess um, my favorite sort of um, holiday meal is what we traditionally eat on Christmas Eve. Now, in Sicily... And again, I'm not sure whether that applies to the rest of Italy. I know it's the case in Germany as well. But in Sicily, we eat seafood and fish on Christmas Eve. Now, that's more than likely a Catholic thing, because I believe um, Christmas Eve was originally a day of abstinence from meat. And there was this weird thing where fish is not meat, apparently. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we eat fish. The prominent dishes, generally, although not particularly in my family, uh, what we called pesce stock with bacala. Now, pesce stock with stockfish, mm. and bacala is pretty much salt dried cod. And the name we have for it mm. is nothing like the name we have for cod. It's just this very specific <laughs> name that is salt dried cod. What we tend to have generally, we have like a seafood salad, primarily with octopus being the main ingredient. Which I know, like, people really look at me really funny when I mention this in Britain. 
So like, what do you mean you eat octopus? Sounds great. <laughs> and we tend to have sort of grilled king prawns and seafood mm-hmm. pasta. So in the imaginary archaeological record of my <laughs> Christmas Eve meal, because you'll probably find, <laughs> not of my family specifically, but you'll find the fish bones of uh, cod and whatever stockfish bones look like. Please write us about it. <laughs> you'll find if the preservation of the soil, like if you have the right taphonomic factors, you'd find the shells of the mussels and the clams that tend to be in the pasta and in the seafood salad that we eat. Uh, I'm not sure whether you'll be able to get the um, pasta, much of the pasta, the king prawn shells or anything in it. You might get food residue on the vessels, possibly. Yeah. But not much aside from that. One thing that you may also be able to get in the archaeological record, if preservation is real good, are the octopus beaks. Because yes, uh, yes, octopi, octopuses, octopi. Octopi? Octopi have beaks. Mm, Octopi. They have... (laughs) Sounds great. They have beaks at the bottom. And they can give you a really nasty bite, by the way. And this beak (laughs) is composed primarily of a material called ketin, which I may have just mispronounced, and cross-linked proteins. Now, this ketin, from what I've gathered, is something that generally you find in the cell walls of mushrooms and as part of the exoskeleton of arthropods. Yeah, I know it mostly from uh, Skyrim. The Keaton or the octopus. The Keaton. You know, you get it from the um, uh, the worm things that the Falmer have. All right. Everything I learned is from video games, guys. Ooh. I'm smart. <laughs> I have to have another video game episode on the, instead of the zoo archaeology True. of video game creatures, we could cover the zoo archaeology of video game meals. Mm, yeah, but that sounds really good. And um, I was going to say, actually, uh, for my Italian-American friends, uh, yeah, I think uh, seafood on Christmas Eve is definitely a thing. At least Italian-Americans seem to still practice that, from my experience. It's probably a Catholic thing. Maybe, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it always sounded nice for me, to be completely honest. Actually, my family used to do seafood for Christmas Eve as well, but that's because we used to go to our friends, uh, our family friend's restaurant, which was a seafood restaurant, and we would get a good deal. Yeah, I guess, as I said, I'm not sure exactly <laughs> what the the origin is of uh, um, the seafood meal, but tastes is good. Fine by me. Yeah. Fair enough. So uh, as for my kind of traditions, some of you guys who listen may know, uh, especially if you follow me on social media, because I don't shut up about it. I am from a uh, mixed family. uh, So we have a lot of blended traditions during the holidays. Um, So one of them that we tend to do, especially for Christmas Day, is from the Norwegian side of my family. Uh, We make a lot of uh, baked goods, Norwegian baked goods, like uh, yulkaka and uh, icebox cakes and all those kinds of stuff. It's just a, loads of baked goods everywhere, which I know isn't just, you know, specifically a Norwegian thing, but it's nice. And it's a nice way to also talk about kind of another component of feasting that we don't really see archaeologically, which is the idea of baked goods. Because, you know, You're not really going to find baked goods as preserved as, say, you know, animal bones or remains or whatever. But, you know, occasionally you do find grains and cereals and charred bits here and there. Uh, Earlier this year, I believe, they found what is being called the world's oldest bread. It was found in Jordan. It's about 14,440 years old. And it was basically these charred remains, and it was analyzed with uh, scanning electron microscopy. And they use all this other criteria that apparently uh, archaeobotanists have to use when looking at grains to consider whether or not it's uh, actually from a baked good like bread. I think they actually got it down to flatbread specifically, which is wild. Yeah, so they found this old flatbread. And it's kind of amazing that you can, by looking at the specific grains uh, and cereals, you can say this is what this was specifically used for. Oh, and also the 3,000-year-old butter that was found in the peat bog that I think a lot of memes uh, used. Oh, that, that's, that must have gone off by now. I mean, I would definitely try it. You, you'd you know. try most things, so that's, that's... I'm tempting God. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> 
anyway, because we have to make it all about me, I have a second thing. Uh, sorry, Simona. <laughs> but um, I'm also Chinese. Uh, my mother is from China. And so another part of our like blended traditions is we have a lot of the Chinese like rice dishes and dim sum dishes, um, which is like a brunch type of dish that you'd have dumplings and stuff with. Uh, and we specifically have this with my Chinese grandparents. And that's kind of a nice way to talk a bit more about who you eat with. So in Chinese culture, especially uh, ancestor worship and veneration is really important. And we even see this as far back as the Shang Dynasty. There have been brought in vessels that have been found and you see these worshippers that are offering wine and soup and fruits to their ancestors. And this is some of the earliest depictions of feasting we have, generally speaking. And uh, actually, in the Shang Dynasty, in the late Shang Dynasty, graveside feasting became pretty important. So you would basically be, you know, at the graveside of like your ancestors and you would feast there. And something that's really interesting about this is that it kind of differs from the categories we we're talking about before, as we're not trying to get the alliance or the, the, the help or the aid of a living person, but of the dead. So, you know, I thought that was really interesting. And I uh, kind of wish we still did that, to be honest. That would be cool. Yeah, and I think these days, like, eating at the cemetery is frowned upon. Yeah, I know, but I want to get, like, my great, great mama or yeah to uh, help me in the Grand War. With the PhD. <laughs> yes, definitely with the PhD. Anyway, not enough about me. Uh, we also actually asked listeners, all you out there, about your own traditions. And we've got a few of them that we wrote down. Because the, the first so one you wanna... <laughs> that comes up, as you'd expect, is um, beer. <laughs> now, of course, uh, even though it's not recovered very frequently in the archaeological record, it is highly likely that alcohol would probably formed an important pass, pa- part of feasting in many cultures. Now, of course, most of what you'd find is, again, residue in vessels. Because it... it can preserve sometimes if the if the stars align. So what you do usually tend to find with beer is more the residue and grains from the beer making process. So I think there is actually evidence of so the first British beer that was found in Cambridgeshire, mm-hmm. which contained barley, water, and oats. I'm so glad you said that because I did not know how to pronounce Cam- Cambridge Cambridgeshire. Cambridgeshire. Yeah. Everything's got weird names here. Oh, like, oh, try, try and pronounce <laughs> Loughborough for me. <laughs> no, I won't. Well, something really interesting about beer, uh, though, is I like that we've kind of had the reverse happen in terms of where we, there's a lot of uh, breweries, especially in places like Scotland and like the Orkneys, who are trying to recreate older beer recipes and alcohol recipes that we've found in texts and, you know, from archaeological uh, record. It's really cool. I actually had some of them before. I had like one that was based on like Orcadian traditions. It was like Heather beer or something like that. It was actually pretty nice. Yeah, I think they've done something similar with um, traces of wine that was found in in food vessels in Sicily, I believe dating to the Roman period. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds... And I think someone out there has tried to recreate wine. Hmm. Anything you can do to make a buck, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> then, of course, another big one that's popped up from a listeners, of course, is roast uh, roast meat. I think every other comment we had mentioned a roast of some kind. So if it was turkey or chicken, all these kinds of food uh, that was like the centerpiece of their feast. Yeah, just like ribs, I think, popped out a fair amount as well, I believe. But yeah, and that again has largely remained uh, unchanged. And the archaeological record, you will similarly find the joints of meat, you know, with uh, burn marks, uh, taphonomic marks in the way of the meal has been portioned, or even like maybe like slicing marks of the way the meat joint has been filleted just so to get the last bits of meat out. And, um, yeah, like in uh, heat exposure marks, which, of course, let's say if it was like a leg joint, you'll have 
the extremities there will be more heat exposed because that when you have the least meat and the the joint mm-hmm. of that bore the most meat of course still being heat affected but of course nowhere near as much as the proximal and distal say that would be completely charred yeah and it, like we were saying before it'd also be probably i don't know if the easiest is the best word to use but it's going to be one of the more remaining bits of a feast in the archaeological record there's so many other aspects of feast that we've been talking about that will degrade and uh, not be there by the time archaeologists get to these sites uh, and animal bones of course will stand the test of time a little bit better so yeah oh, gosh i'm thinking about ribs right now <laughs> so like taking it away from the ribs veggies yeah veg- let's talk about something healthy healthy-ish veggies and fruits. Uh, So a lot of listeners chimed in with a lot of side dishes that have to do with veggies and fruits. We had a lot of people talk about roast and baked veg. Uh, Of course, a lot of people talk about cranberry sauce, especially in America. We've got our fruit pies, you know, which will always be superior to the meat pie. And (laughs) as we said before, you know, these are things that won't necessarily survive in the archaeological record. I'll tell you what I was really, what kind of pie I was really confused about when I moved here. Mince what? pies. That, so I'd expected them, okay, so there's, there's salty pies with minced beef. No. Yeah. Got raisins. Why'd you lie to me? Yeah, right? <laughs> it's really, it's really weird. And I, I mean, it's okay. I've, I've never really liked it, but I've only really had mince pies from like the corner shop. <laughs> or like the pub. <laughs> Check it's probably not the best representation of um, mince pie. Probably not. I don't like raisins anyway, so... That's fair. Uh, but yeah, no, these are things that aren't necessarily going to survive in the archaeological record. You'll get your trace elements and vessels like we've been talking about. Never underestimate the power of residue and grains, apparently. But a lot of what we find can be found in, you know, artwork that are depicting these feasts. Like I was talking about before with the Shang Dynasty vessels, you know... There are so many depictions of feasting that really help in our interpretations because so much of that won't uh, last. And also in text, especially as you get a little bit further into the timeline, uh, a lot of early historians writing about these kind of things are super hopeful. But then, of course, if you're dealing with the prehistoric period where, say, there wasn't a lot of um, even sort of depictions or artwork found, uh, well, good luck. Yeah, it's a little bit. That's when you get a little bit more like imagination. <laughs> Although there are the works uh, have been made. I think there's a there's a book out there. Well, I'll try to find because I don't remember the exact title. I'll try to find them, put it in the show notes. But there's one. There's a book that's entirely dedica- dedicated to prehistoric cooking in Britain, huh. and it gives you actual recipes. So I guess maybe a lot of those are from the later Iron Age, so they maybe looked at Roman sources. I'm not too sure, but yeah, it, it's someone's put the work in. <laughs> Better than than me. And kind of the last thing I wanted to talk about, especially as someone who's uh, a bit, you know, like I like witchy stuff in general, uh, is herbs. Uh, <laughs> so we actually had some people mention uh, herb kind of base. Well, not herb base, but like, herb dishes in terms of paprika baked onions you had panzerati with cinnamon and it just got me thinking how important herbs are that we don't really talk about especially if we're talking about ritualized activities uh there's instances of herbs that have been burnt probably to mask smells especially if you're dealing with like the funerary type of things or to invoke smells as well that are related to whatever you're actually doing and how these herbs can correlate with certain concepts or deities. Uh, So, you know, it's all these pieces of the feast really correlate together to make an experience, I guess. Now I sound like I'm trying to uh, sell a new restaurant. Have a feast. It's always a good time for a feast. Have you had your feast yet? It's an experience. Speaking of experiences, we're going to go experience a break. And we'll be back after this. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. 
and we're back with Archeo Animals and today we are talking about feasting and holidays and basically just food in general. It's an excuse to talk about a lot of food. And actually, over the break, uh, Simona, you just found out what that book was that we were talking about before. Yes, the title of the book is uh, Food and Farming in Prehistoric Britain by P. Elliot. And I've actually I've put the full reference down in the show notes for those who are interested in looking at that. Yeah, and also uh, let us know if you want us to do an episode about this, because, you know, it might be fun to do an episode about trying to recreate prehistoric meals. Yeah, I could try to follow the recipes and then try them live. Yeah, then I finally we get able to eat something while we record. We fixed it. We solved the greatest problem of all time. That's why I've, that's why I've got a master's degree. Mm, same. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's everyone's favorite part of the podcast. We're up to case studies. Although I guess realistically, this whole episode's been case studies. Now that I think about it, much and even like a, a case study unto ourselves. Yeah, we've, we've Ooh, that's deep. A case study. We have become what we speak of. I don't know. Oh, meta. (laughs) We are very meta. Anyway, starting off, I'm actually going to revisit something that we talked about before. Uh, For those of you who listened to our episode on pigs, you might remember we talked a bit about the Stonehenge feasts and how there are these just huge amounts of uh, pig remains have been interpreted as the people who are, you know, creating and building Stonehenge. This is what they were eating. And... I know we talked about that in terms of pigs, but I kind of want to talk a bit more about, you know, the mechanics of feasting, if that makes sense. Like the fact that Stonehenge is clearly a place where loads of people were going to uh, be there and also going to help build these places. It kind of makes sense that they would have a kind of a communal feasting as part of that entire, you know, activity or ritualized activity, you know? Oh, absolutely. And I just, I, we have to talk about Stonehenge. Ugh. That's what <laughs> every archaeologist needs to talk about Stonehenge. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> you, you, you talk about Stonehenge. You go, you go ahead. I mean, yeah, no, I'm just really interested in the idea of, um, you know, because of course Stonehenge is this big thing, like weird abstract concept, especially with archaeologists of like, oh, it was this weird ritual thing or the aliens made it or whatever and i feel like no one really talks about you know the mechanics of like yeah these were a lot of people who were meeting here and they probably ate you know had these big feasts and that's why i'm really glad that this kind of research has been coming out about you know the kind of food they've been eating because it's just something that kind of grounds the stonehenge conversation a bit more for me (laughs) oh no absolutely in a way that's what i find more interesting because as a spectacular a Stonehenge may be, it doesn't tell you an awful lot about the people. Yeah, no, exactly. Because personally, the reason I do this, I want to reconstruct the lives of the people, not the big funerary complex or not of the 1%, but of the people. You heard it here, folks. If that makes sense. We are archaeology for the people, truly. We're going to tear down Stonehenge. (laughs) No, No, I'm not strong. I'm not that strong. I can't do it. I'm sorry. But yeah, no, that's kind of just what I want to talk about with Stonehenge. But yeah, I would also love to go to a Stonehenge feast. I feel like there's a, a world out there where people uh, don't do ridiculous things and we could have feasts at Stonehenge still. That'd be nice. Do they have feasts in the summer solstice, maybe? I mean, like, like an actual feast feast, not just like people standing around and like eating a, a meal deal. <laughs> It can be a fee. Anything can be That's a That's true. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm now mean judgmental. I'm so sorry. But yeah, no, it would be nice. Like, you know, those like, like we were talking about before, those dining experiences. I'm surprised they haven't had dining experiences at Stonehenge. Well, because on the one hand, it's like, please don't eat off the archaeology. <laughs> but what if we did? Just uh, if you must. <laughs> As someone who has definitely eaten like a chocolate bar over archaeology before, you know. Oh. You heard it here. Yeah. (laughs) This is why I'm not going to get any work. Anyway, I believe you have a a real hot take in our next case study. Oh, I've got a can of worms. No, not even a hot take. You got a can of worms. That's even worse. Hmm. So, like, uh, let's do it. Come on. All right. Okay. Uh, So, my can of worms for this month is um, 
what um, we know as Cosweed enclosures. Now, I'm going to be providing a lot of context for this because I feel that uh, Cosweed enclosures is not are not something that are terribly well known even within archaeological circles. I have no idea what a Cosweed enclosure is. Just saying. But, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So a Cosweed enclosure is a Neolithic monument that is um, found on the British Isles. Now, they're not exclusive to Britain because these are also found on the main, or mainland Europe. But they, these tend to date from 5000 to 4200 BC. And then you sort of see them moving, like reaching Western and Northern Europe and then eventually Britain some 500 to 1000 years later which in itself raises some interesting questions about shifting social and economic dynamics in Britain at the time. But that's a story for another day. The point with Cosmid enclosures is that they, they're not very common, as in like they're not uncommon, but they're not common, if you know what I mean. No, um, absolutely but, um, <laughs> Either way, um, I think in the statistics that have been done, uh, the total is shy of 120 Cosmid enclosures across the British Isles. The vast majority of them are located in England. You have a few in Scotland, I believe it says two in Scotland, two in Wales, or maybe three in Scotland, two Wales, two in Ireland, and one on the Isle of Man. Hmm. So, yeah, 120, well, just under 120. So, you know, they're, they're not completely unheard of. There's a fair few, but it's not terribly common either. Now, the feature itself, it's an oval or circular feature, of course, a quite substantial diameter and it's formed by one or more discontinuous ditch and bank systems so if you will the sort of like an entrance way or like an entrance to sort of navigate your way within all the various ditches and banks sometimes uh, these features were palisaded and you normally see that because timber doesn't really preserve in britain you'd usually what you'd find in the archaeological record are rows of postals the postal being sort of the the man-made cut that has been made into the ground to then insert the wooden posts and then pack it around with whatever, be it rubble of more or more soil. The post hole is by far one of the most important archaeological artifacts in Britain, from my experience, at least. Yeah, and one of the most frustrating of that, too. Especially yeah. when there's a whole row of them. The thing about uh, Cosmid enclosures is that to this date, I'm not sure we've really agreed on what they were for, or what sort of function they may have uh, represented or what really went on inside of these enclosures. What we do know is that largely they are non-funerary in nature, which in a way it makes Cosmid enclosures the earliest form of non-funerary monument on the British Isles. Uh, so they're like an early Stonehenge, now I understand. Yeah. <laughs> so surely th there are burials of Stonehenge, aren't there? But then later. I think so. Yeah, something like that. I was just making a bad joke. Yeah, I think that's the case for Cosby, because I think some do have burials, but they tend to be of um, later date. But anyway. That's interesting, yeah. The reason I'm rambling on about Cosby enclosures is that, as it may surprise no one, what we do know is that some feasting did happen within these enclosures, <laughs> based on the evidence that we've been recovering from the ditch deposits. Uh, so what you find, so the ditches appear for the most part to have been backfilled um, with this very sort of dark midden-like deposit. And I think as I've mentioned earlier, sort of in, in, in archaeology, when you encounter a deposit that is very dark in colour, that can sort of be owing to sort of a higher incidence of charcoal within the fill, but it could also be due to decaying organic matter within the film. And of course, you know, that's very same technical load of animal remains. The doesn't tend to, it tends to be very mixed in terms of the species that are recovered. Although on some sites, so like on the Cosmid enclosure of, at Hamblerdon Hill in Dorset, there's a high incidence of cattle, for example. Oh. More than that, it does tend to be a bit of a mix. And what you do tend to find as well is pottery, usually smashed to bits, which are presumed mm -hmm. as of now to be potential storage vessels. So, of course, the assumption here is that this deposited material is directly linked to the activity that was taking place inside the enclosure. Because, um, don't quote me on this, uh, but um, 
I believe that these Cosmid enclosures are not spatially located necessarily near a settlement. So I guess it would be very weird to have mm-hmm. a feast at the settlement and then you bring all these bags of bones and then you go chuck them in the Cosmid enclosure. I mean, they might have done. <laughs> but probably yeah, not. weirder things have happened. <laughs> um, uh, so, of course, you know, because of the high quantity of it and the way the deposit looks, there is evidence for deliberate backfill. And what's also interesting about it is that you do, well, this backfill is sometimes very organized and you do have evidence for numerous recuts. So you, in uh, archaeology, sort of when we talk about recuts, we mean, so, like, so you have your ditch and your ditch, in this particular case, gets manually backfilled with this uh, material, the rescue material from feasting. So it gets filled up, but then after a while, it gets cut again. So that material gets shoveled out once more. So the ditch is in use uh, again, and then it gets backfilled again, and then they cut it out again sometime later, and it just keeps going on. So you do tend to see a series of recuts, which in a way also implies a kind of maintenance of the structure. Because, for example, you yeah. see that a lot in, say, in even something uh, as simple as sort of irrigation systems. Because, of course, because of the water going yeah. through them, they will silt up. They will have erosion coming in from all sides. It will fill up quicker than you expect. And then you'll find a recut when they'll try to clear up the silt. But, of course, you, like, without necessarily meaning to, you sort of, you, yeah, you recut the feature. And then when you excavate it, you're actually able to see that by looking at the archaeology, like, uh, if the feature has been recut or maintained over time or not. So yeah, I think with Cosby enclosure, because it's just something, yeah, so like they're not very well known. If you do want to learn more about these features, there's actually a whole open access book, which was actually my main source for the case study. Uh, and that's available on the archaeology data service. And I've got to go put a link in the show notes. So if I've left you wanting for more Cosby enclosures, so there's a whole book about them. <laughs> you were very hyped about um, this book. <laughs> Woo! It's super interesting, to be fair. Sorry, it just it's just when I go off on one, it's just it's the Roman taxation system all over again. <laughs> to be fair, it's what the, just going with the flow. It's what the audience wants. This is the third segment is often the case studies slash Simona's uh, tangent uh, section, and I would never have it any other way, to be honest. Oh, thank you. So hopefully educational tangent. <laughs> I was actually going to say, um, me reaching back into the dark, dark corners of my mind when I used to be a classical archaeologist, I think, um, I don't know if you can uh, attest to this, Simona, something similar with Etruscan, some Etruscan tombs. Like, I vaguely remember there being a thing of these kind of the entryways into these tombs being uh, backfilled and often having the kind of rubbish that you associate with feasting as well mixed in to them, I think. <laughs> I don't, um, don't remember that specifically. Uh, uh, of course, like, it would make sense and it would make sense to see a recut of so the rubble being taken out because the the. Etruscan tumuli were in use for over a long period of time because they tended to be sort of big family graves. Mm-hmm, so yeah. you would uh, go in to deposit sort of another body, and by you, I mean like not the family, the slave would go in to add um, another body sort of on the stone beds that they had within the tumulus. Uh, and then when you ran out of room, you just took the oldest bone and you just started sticking it, sticking it on the walls. Yeah, <laughs> as, you, as you do, as you do. Um, but they would have been used for a long period of time because some of them were quite large. Because again, and that links back to fe- uh, feasting in a way as well. As this all sort of showing wealth. So even in Etruscan yeah. society, sort of like the bigger, the better, because you would show that like you know you you were wealthy because you could big you could build big tumuli, and they, they would have <laughs> uh, celebrations. So within the funerary area, so yeah, I guess what you said, it it makes perfectly good sense. And then you'd find sort of uh, feasting material sort of within the entranceway of the structures. Yeah. And I like that actually you mentioned that brings it back around to the idea that you were talking about before in that when you find feasting remains in these kind of funerary areas, how do we know they were actually, you know, feasting for the living? And there's that idea of if feasting is a form of status, wealth, performativeness, um, how that could even go into the 
the afterlife in that, you know, this person is such high status that they are able to have this feast, which is not for any of the living people. It's well, what they're taking with them, which is actually really interesting. Like in Egyptian archaeology. So I think like bodies are being yeah, recovered in that, the dynastic yeah, period with entire like joints of meat just being the, there in their graves. See, this is why I'm not an ancient Egyptian uh, archaeologist, because I would probably just start chowing down. Yeah, I'm not sure there's much left of the meat joints. And if it uh, is, yeah, know, the, the never 10 out of 10 would not recommend eating. You know, you have to have higher ambitions. <laughs> really. Eating ancient Egyptian <laughs> meat joints. I mean, like, you don't know. Could be good. I could be starting a trend. A horrible trend. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's bad. Uh... <laughs> But yeah, no. Um, is there anything else you want to add about feasting before we take this to the oh, close? Oh, that's not. Ah, that's true. We don't we don't have time for another hour long uh, segment, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, no. Um, for anyone uh, listening, when we release this episode, uh, we hope you all have a good holiday, regardless of what you uh, are celebrating or not celebrating. Just you know, enjoy the times. Enjoy the end of the year, stuff like that. And uh, once again, uh, ha- j- please join us in wishing the uh, Archaeology Podcast Network a happy birthday. Um, why not give the gift of archaeology this year uh, as it is the holiday uh, slash giving season? You know, tell your friends and family about this really great uh, podcast about uh, dead animals. You know you want to. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, come on. I tried. Uh, anyway, that's that's been us. Uh, it's been another episode of Archive Animals. Happy holidays. Happy birthday to our pod nuts. Yeah. We'll see you next time. Listening to Archaeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. You can find us on Twitter at Archaeo Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts, and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Bro.